Welcome to the fifth session of the IPS Singapore Perspectives Conference 2021. My name is Carol Soon. I am Senior Research Fellow and Head of the Society and Culture Department at IPS. Now, the title of this afternoon's panel is Technology and Livability. But before I introduce the moderator for this panel, let me run through a few administrative details. Now, throughout the session, you as conference participants can submit your questions to the panelists through the questions section on this forum site. We ask that you contribute to the discussion in a respectful and safe manner, focusing on the issues discussed. So it is now my great pleasure to introduce the moderator for this session, Dr. Cheong Kun Hien. Now, Dr. Cheong is currently chairman for, of the Centre for Livable Cities at the Ministry of National Development. Many of you would know her as the former CEO of the Housing and Development Board, where she oversaw the development and management of more than a million public housing flats. She was also CEO of the Urban Redevelopment Authority, where she played a key role in many major urban transformation projects, such as Marina Bay. Currently, Dr. Chong wears many, many hats, including being a fellow at the Singapore Institute of Architects and Institute of Planners, and she serves on the board of NUS as well. I'm sure you will enjoy the panel as much as I will. So over to you, Dr. Chong. Thank you very much, uh, Carol. Well, good afternoon and welcome to this uh, IPS Singapore Perspective Conference. Uh, as you're aware, the conference really features nine online interactive forums on the 12th, 14th and 19th January with a final hybrid conference on the 25th of January. So we will be examining the challenges presented by the disruption of the COVID-19 pandemic as well as trends that will impact our economy, our society, and the politics and governance of Singapore, and how we can reimagine Singapore's future over the next decade. Well, you have now tuned in to Forum 5, and the focus is on technology and livability. Well, this is a very broad topic, so let me try to attempt to set out a broad framework for our discussion. Obviously, the first question is, what is livability? I would venture that there are three aspects of livability. First is the physical aspects. A livable city is really one that supports the health, the well-being, and the quality of life of the people who live and work in them. So the way we plan, design, build, manage cities can enhance or detract from livability. And these physical characteristics will include things like the quality of our built environment, the reliability of municipal services and transport networks, how we access work, education, health, community services, and social and recreational opportunities. But less tangible to city livability are broader societal and cultural characteristics of places and communities within cities. The cultural characteristics of cities reflect really both historical and contemporary ways of living, the values and meaning attached to places and events and the interaction that we have with the natural environment. And of course, the social aspects of cities include how cities can help to build social capital and strengthen social cohesion that contribute to a sense of trust and inclusion. And I think a lot of our discussion may cover these. And of course, cities are in a rush to adopt technology, particularly digital technology, 
to improve the livability of cities. And indeed, COVID-19 has accelerated technological innovation in all areas of live, learn, work, and in the way we connect from the safety of our homes. So we can expect to continue to see rapid technological development impacting our lives, our environment, and our society. Now, this leads us to reflect on some crucial questions from a city perspective. Going forward, what are the opportunities for harnessing technology to improve the livability of cities? How do we integrate the physical world with the digital world? If everybody is uh, doing online retail, it completely changes, for example, the uh, malls that we have. How do we deploy technology in effective and efficient ways that truly meet the needs of cities and in particular, its citizens? What should be the main areas of focus? And bearing in mind that the context of this track is about society to bring happiness based on justice and equality, we would need to ask ourselves, what will a digital society look like? Which groups will be impacted positively and negatively? At a national level, how will technology impact our sense of being a national community? And at a more local level, how do we connect and continue to build social capital? But we know that there's also a darker side to technological innovation, right? And these issues really range from physical challenges, such as the, genera the generation of mountains of e-waste, the higher cost of maintaining digital infrastructure, to societal issues regarding the widening digital divide and concerns with privacy, etc. Well, we have today a fantastic group of panelists and discussants who will help to draw out the key insights into some of these issues. And we will start with two speakers who will give a presentation of about 15 minutes each. And thereafter, I will invite comments from two of our discussants on their thoughts, questions, and any reactions to the presentations. Uh, then after that, we will turn the session to you, online participants, and I hope that all of you who are tuning in will participate actively through Pigeonhole in a two-way conversation with us and particularly with the panelists and the discussants. So let me, with great pleasure, introduce you to our first speaker, who is Ms. Audrey Tang. Now, she is Taiwan's Digital Minister in charge of social innovation. So thank you, Audrey, for taking the time to join us. And in the public sector, Audrey served on the Taiwan National Development Council's Open Data Committee. And in the private sector, she worked as a consultant with Apple on computational linguistics, with Oxford University Press on crowd lexicography, and with social text on social interaction design. So here we have someone who really knows technology. And of course, Taiwan has been one of the few countries that has successfully managed COVID-19 pandemic thus far. So we look forward to uh, Audrey sharing on Taiwan's experience with us. Over to you, Audrey. Hello, good local time, everyone. Uh, really happy to do virtually uh, to share some thoughts around digital innovation for an digital minister at TW uh, in charge of innovation. Now, um, I'm told today 
that I just have to say next slide and the slides will magically appear. Uh, is that a arrangement? <laughs> yes. Okay, right. So as you can see, um, we have this hashtag Taiwan can help. And we're happy to share the so-called Taiwan model of countering the pandemic um, with no lockdown and countering the pandemic with, with no takedown. And end um, result, uh, of course, is too soon to call it the end result, but is that uh, we were able to strengthen democracy even during the twin demics, the infodemic and pandemic, um, through what we call the fair and fun principles, which improves livability for everyone involved. Next slide. Okay, so um, the first pertains to the accountability. Uh, when we say accountability, we mean that not only the government has to give an account to the citizens in a rapid fashion, in an accountable way, but also mutual accountability in a sense that any citizen who are willing to help the nation and of us can decide to uh, begin to give an account of what the situation looks like from the social sector's perspective. This is called people-public-private partnership with the people first. Next slide. The collective intelligence system uh, serves as a really good example. Um, around uh, more than one year ago now, uh, in December, there was uh, on PTT, Taiwan's equivalent of Reddit. The difference is that our PTT is not for profit. It is literally National Taiwan University's uh, student site project. It's open source, self-governed, democratically governed, and not answered uh, to any capitalist uh, shareholders. This proved to be important because uh, people are less distracted by the antisocial aspect of social media, but rather on the pro-social aspect, uh, like a, I don't know, the Hyde Park or something, is a digital public infrastructure. Uh, and so it is on PTT uh, where this person called No More Pipe reposted Dr. Li Wenliang from Wuhan's message uh, that there's, and I quote, seven new SARS cases uh, found, unquote. Now, while Dr. Li Wenliang didn't uh, amplify his message to the citizens of Wuhan for obvious reasons, uh, he did save the Taiwanese people because people starting it on the PTT. Uh, and the upshot is that uh, the very next day, starting 1st of January, we started health inspections from uh, all the, uh, from Wuhan into Taiwan. So next slide. Uh, and this is thanks to the, according to the Civicus Monitor, Taiwan is the most open, actually the only completely open jurisdiction in all of Asia um, in terms of the freedom of assembly, speech, and the press. So the citizens that the government uh, will uh, not quote unquote harmonize uh, this whistleblowing, uh, and the government trusts the citizens to triage the veracity of this uh, intelligence, right, collective intelligence. And so we set up the Central Epidemic Command Center to start give an account to all the questions that the citizens may have even before we had the first reported case locally. Next slide. Now in CECC, the most important part is it's not digital, it's quite analog. It's a call center um, with this toll-free number 1922 that anyone can call after the every 2 p.m. Uh, press conference where all the CECC people answer all the journalist questions. If you have doubts or fears or anything, you just call 1922. 95% of the calls gets answered immediately uh, with the scientific principle shared. But there's also a handful 
for example, around mid-April, there was a young boy that called saying, hey, you're rationing out masks, but all I get is pink medical masks. All my uh, classmates at class who are boys wear blue, and I don't want to wear pink mask to the school uh, for I would delete it or uh, bullied or something. Uh, now, that's something that the call center cannot answer. So it get uh, escalated to the CC the very next day. So date at the 13th of April at 2 p.m., all the press officers and medical officers in CCC were pink, and they were that uh, for quite a while. And so suddenly the boy become the most hit boy in the class, for only he has the color that the heroes wear. And Minister Chen Shizhong, the commander, even said that Pink Panther was his childhood hero. So the boy also wears the color of heroes, heroes. Uh, and so that, so yeah, uh, that the pink was trending uh, for quite a few weeks. Uh, and so this is a great um, accountability mechanism, like 24-hour iterations, like we're not just gender mainstreaming, but also amplifying social innovation. Next. The fair pillar uh, concerns equity uh, and inclusion of accessing to essential services related to health. Now, um, around that time, around uh, mid-January, um, I think, when CECC gets set up, because we had previous exposure to SARS, people already started stockpiling uh, medical-grade masks. Now, the problem is that because in Taiwan, we only had, at the time, less than 2 million medical mask production facility per day. Uh, with a country of 23 million, that means that we had to ration out masks. But even before we actually roll out the rationing plan uh, starting February, um, there's a new social innovation that was rolled out by an individual in Tainan City named Howard Wu. Next slide. Uh, and Howard Wu built this uh, map. It's based on Google Map, uh, as you can see here. Uh, and it basically allows anyone to crowdsource uh, whether there's still some mask uh, or whether it runs out of mask on this map. And so uh, he turned something like a noise field chat room. Uh, into a signal field crowdsource map um, that enabled everyone uh, to contribute. However, of course, uh, the quality of the data varies because in places where there's less volunteers, um, you do not get uh, high resolution data, but it's a really good idea. And uh, within the first couple of days, uh, because it got uh, aired on national TV, Howard Wu owed Google in API usage fees, uh, I think more than 20K US dollars. Of course, this is not sustainable. Uh, so he went on the uh, Gov0 or G0V, a civic tech movement. Now, in Taiwan, we do have our GovTech uh, people, um, well, uh, with me at the head, uh, but the civic tech people uh, are much more innovative, uh, and they're always uh, discussing this in open source uh, way. And so I participated in their discussion as well and immediately noticed um, that this is really a good idea. And so I told to uh, the head of the cabinet, our premier, Su Chen-chang, saying, we need to trust the citizens with open data in real time. Now, in Taiwan, we have our procurement laws that says all the people-to-people -people interaction parts through a website also need to be machine-to-machine -machine enabled uh, through an open API. So piggybacking on that uh, principle, we released the real-time of mask in each and every pharmacy updated every 30 seconds. Now, this enabled Howard Wu, Fin Chen Kiang, and many other people to build this uh, real-time tools that allow people who queue in line to participate in ability. That is to say, when you queue in nine, nowadays it's uh, 10 medical masks per two weeks, you can see literally the person queuing before you, swiping their national health card, uh, and then see 
in real mask availability deplete by 10 in that particular pharmacy. Uh, and if people notice that it instead raised by 10 or something, they will call 1922 right there. So imagine if we um, publish every day, it's basically third party accountability. You have to trust the national audience. But because it's updated every 30 seconds, it becomes uh, second party uh, accountability, participatory accountability, and everyone can earn trustworthiness. It's like a distributed letter and 100 different tools, each keeping a record next slide uh, like this. So that uh, when uh, MP, a member of parliament, uh, Gao Hongan, previously a VP of data analytics at Foxconn Group, so she knows something about data, um, interpolated Minister Chen Shizhong saying, it looks fair, right, in the map. But if you delve uh, deep into the time cost, actually for people who are less equipped, like with cost and so on, they have to travel through public transportation. And in the more rural places, even though the physical distance on air is the same, it's actually uneven. So that by the time they get to the pharmacy, it may have already been closed. So it's actually unfair. Now, because this evidence-based interpolation, Mr. Chen Shizong didn't defend the policy at all. He simply said, legislator teach us. Uh, and, and that's what he said. And the very next day, we start working with the OpenStreetMap community, next slide, and co-created um, a convenience store pre-order um, mechanism so that you can pre-order online and pick up nearby convenience stores and so on. And so um, MP Gao was very happy saying yesterday's interpolation become tomorrow's co-creation. So I would argue that this not only bridges the digital divide uh, by introducing convenience store staff in addition to pharmacists to help the elderly people and the people who are less equipped with mobile phones, but actually engage in policy uh, making through this multi-stakeholder consultation based on the same data. Next. Now, uh, I don't have a lot of time to go into the counter uh, infodemic part, uh, but the fast fair fund, the fund pillar, uh, is, uh, I think, uh, a highlight of the Taiwan model because this is what we call humor over rumor. Uh, we found that uh, the people's conspiracy theories, for example, there was a time also in April where people would buy tissue papers because there was a conspiracy theory that said all the material that's um, going to go into the mask factories are the same material as tissue paper, so we'll run out of tissue paper really soon. Now, of course, this has no basis in reality, but it did motivate people's behavior, so people do panic buy. But uh, within a weekend, within literally 48 hours, uh, the R value, the basic transmission rate of the conspiracy theory uh, decimated uh, very quickly until it's below one. That is to say it's cleared up. And why is that? Next slide because we wrote out a vaccine of the mind. Now, this is Premier Su Zhenchang. Uh, you saw his front side, now this is backside. Uh, and it says in very large print uh, that each of us only have uh, uh, one pair of bottoms. Um, this is a wordplay because in Mandarin to stockpile twin sounds the same as twin. Uh, and so because of that, um, people, uh, this went viral, like literally went viral. Uh, and there's a table that says here that the tissue paper material came from South America, while the uh, PPE material came from uh, the domestic material. There's no way that these two could be confused with one another because this literally went viral. People who laugh about it cannot unsee this, uh, and therefore uh, people learned to clarify those um, the conspiracy theories without us having to issue any administrative takedowns. Next slide. And so this is not just a one-shot thing. Uh, we actually have a very cute spokesdoc. The name is Song Shiba Inu. Uh, 
because in each ministry we have a team of participation officers that engages the citizenry, engaging the emerging hashtags. Now the participation officer of Ministry of Health and Welfare happen to live with this dog. So all they have to do after each CCC press conference is to return home, take new photos of the dog, and on the top left you can see physical distancing. Um, when you're indoor, uh, keep three Shiba Inus away, outdoor two Shiba Inus away. On the upper right, remember to, to cover your mouth and nose when sneezing. Don't do what this dog does. Um, on the bottom left, remember to pre-order your mask. But what does the mask do to you? Well, on the bottom right, the dog says, if you wear a mask, it protects you against your own hand against your own unwashed hand. Uh, and this is a, an appeal to rashness of interest that absolutely goes viral. I mean, when I say wear a mask to protect you against your own hand, you may remember, but you will probably not share it. But when this is a very cute dog uh, post this, then people share it in all sorts of different languages and reaches a lot of people so that we reach, I think by April, more than th three quarters of people actually wearing masks and washing their hands much more vigorously, at which point the R value become below one. Next slide. So. Um, 15 minutes. Uh, this is an abbreviated uh, uh, version of my TED Talk, an hour long, uh, but you can find the rest of it in Taiwan can help that us. Thank you. Thank you very much, Audrey. I think I think some of the buzzwords will really stick in my mind, you know, collective intelligence, accountability, applying social innovation, trust citizens with open data and crowdsource, co-creation, and I love the last one, humor over rumor. I think we have to smile a lot more and learn from you. <laughs> Thank you very much for the very engaging session. Well, our next speaker is uh, Mr. Liu Feng Yuan. He is the co-founder and chief executive officer of Basis AI, an artificial intelligence startup that builds scalable, responsible AI systems for enterprises. Uh, he formerly led data science initiatives for Smart Nation, and uh, Feng Yuan received a Bachelor of Arts in Philosophy, Politics and Economics from the University of Oxford as a President Scholar and obtain, obtained a Master of Science in Economics at the London School uh, of Economics. So Feng Yuan, we now love to hear from you and uh, perhaps slightly different orientation of topics on data and software interacting with the physical world. How do you enhance livability? And how do you see digital technology and the internet influencing governance and community? Over to you. Thanks, thanks, thanks so much, uh, Dr. Chong, and uh, thanks to, to Audrey for such a uh, invigorating uh, presentation. Uh, I, I don't have uh, uh, slides today, but I just want to make a couple of remarks and, and provocations uh, to hopefully set up uh, what I think is going to be a really interesting conversation. And I'm going to make remarks in kind of two uh, segments. Um, first, uh, I, I, I was very inspired by the, the group that we have here and, and Sean used to be, you know, uh, um, you know, work at URA and HDB and it's about physical spaces. And it set me thinking about the interaction between data and, and physical design of cities. Uh, the second, uh, piece of, uh, um, thoughts that I wanted to share was around digital technology and governance. What does it mean to be a, a smart nation and, and what are the implications for new technology on, on national identity? Uh, so I'll, I'll make a couple of provocations and hopefully that sets us up for a good discussion. Um, one thing that's very really interesting is I, I used to spend some time working in the land transport authority and uh, looking at transportation. And that was the time when obviously data and, and the use of data analytics uh, was also kind of emerging. And it's very interesting because you have software, which is infinitely malleable, 
and then you had a physical world where you're much more constrained by by the laws of physics and um you know one of the the, the things that came to me was was this idea that uh, what does the use of data um, in our planning mean for the physical space? And I think it, it forces us to think about how we can think of cities in a much more malleable way, how we need to design you know, for our physical spaces to be much more um, like evolutionary organisms that can adjust with data. Because with data, with the ability to have real-time information, you, you want the ability to adjust. And maybe in the past, you, you, you never needed to adjust physical infrastructure. Uh, but now uh, it can be. And let me give you some, some ideas. So back in 2011 and 2012, there was a, a big crunch in public transportation. And the biggest problem with public transportation is that supply takes a very long time to build. It takes more than 10 years to build a new train line, five years to buy a new train. Um, but demand for people and the economy changes so quickly in, in, in months or, or years. And this is almost an impossible problem because you're always trying to match demand and supply and there will always be periods when it's not going to match. With better data, we could actually forecast, right, what the demand is going to be in crowding on new train lines and new bus lines. But what can we do about it? Um, wouldn't it be great if, you know, um, we could move some trains from the northeast line to the north-south line? Um, unfortunately, we couldn't because they 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 built using different systems, right? Um, uh, why do we need fixed bus routes? Um, why can't bus routes be on demand? And we tried an initiative to try and use you know, uh, shuttle buses, uh, using data to plan routes, using crowdsourcing uh, to make these bus routes uh, less fixed and, and more malleable. Right? So you can think about the concept of a grab share extended to public transport. But I, I encourage, um, I think, everybody to think about how with the use of data, the, the ability to be more responsive, how we can think about making other parts of, of our physical infrastructure more, more flexible. And then we can get really futuristic and we can imagine a world where, you know, um, with autonomous vehicles, um, then you really don't need fixed bus routes at all. I mean, the whole premise behind fixed bus routes is that I know bus number two goes to these stops all the time. But when I no longer have human drivers who need to memorize the bus routes, uh, when I can assure the citizen that you'll get from your origin to your destination in less than 10 minutes, don't really worry about the, the route it's going to take then you can assuage concerns about predictability just with better use of data and automation. Why do roads even have to be fixed? Uh, I was reminded by one discussant that Nickel Highway used to have two middle lanes that would change direction during peak hour. Um, but, you know, um, it's important to have fixed roads because human drivers need to remember how to navigate. But in the world of autonomous vehicles, we can completely reconfigure not just lanes, but the, the, the road configurations. Um, because the roads will just be part of the navigation and the mapping software built into autonomous vehicles. So, so again, I, I think what's really interesting to me is thinking about how with better instrumentation, better data, um, you, you really need to redesign physical infrastructure to be much more malleable. And I, I think that will help uh, overcome a lot of the, the challenges with, with physical design of, of cities. So that's one set of um, provocations uh, to, to, to think about. And I think the, the other set of topics I wanted to talk about was how digital technology affects governance and, and to some extent national identity. And when I think about governance, I, I think about two key roles of government. One is really the provision of public services and two is about how you can build institutions of trust because it's all about um, consensus alignment and that's what participatory democracy is about. 
And so let's let's go on to the, the first area of public services and, and and the more mundane aspects, right? And and one of the things I realized, people always used to ask me, what, what is a smart nation, right? What's a smart city? And I realized it all, it's all about convenience. It's all about, you know, making things a lot easier so you can spend time on things that matter most. And I think increasingly, because, you know, online services have such great user experience, public services only have to, to catch up. Uh, you know, whether it's managing your CPF, you know, the, the, the comparisons are to digital banks, whether it's, you know, buying um, a resale HDB flat, the comparison is again to, to kind of online platforms like Property Guru and, and, and other services um, uh, to buy and sell flats. So, so it's all the mundane things, you know, paying for parking, registering for my son and daughter's birth certs. Uh, but I found that in the last five years in Singapore, these bureaucratic rabbit holes have really gone away a lot more for me. And that makes me very happy, right? It's, it's, it's all these small frictions that have just made my quality of life a lot better. And, you know, Singapore has this brand where things just work, right? You, we don't even have to file taxes. Uh, a lot of the times there's auto tax filing. And I see, you know, digital technology and government uh, as a continuation of that experience. How do we, um, citizens shouldn't have to think about their interactions with government and, and all the bureaucracy. And, and, and the more we make that a more delightful experience, the more it's uh, allowing people to spend more time with human connections. And, and so, you know, a smart nation is, is really just in a more simple way about, about convenience uh, at, at one level, right? It's all about the user experience. The second, I suppose, more weighty issue um, is about how um, the use of technology, the internet, social media, and, and the impact that's been having on, um, um, you know, institutions, trust, and participatory democracy. And, you know, I, I, I always lament the, the ability, you know, to have a, the, the, the inability to have a serious policy debate on Facebook. I like the fact that I can reach out to all my friends on Facebook and, and, and connect. I want to hear their views. And every time I start, start to have a serious conversation online, it, it, it goes nowhere. Right. And, and that's frustrating, but it's, it's, it should be exciting and it, it's really futile. Um, but I, I think a lot of um, political discourse, a lot of public policy discourse is happening on, on social media and, and how can we make this, this a lot better? I think, you know, obviously there's a lot of conversations around, um, um, you know, echo chambers and, and I think, um, the answer, I don't have the clear answer. I, I quite like this idea of the intersection of physical and digital communities, right? I feel like it's a lot easier to have connections in person. But right, if you during this COVID pandemic, you have all these Zoom meetings, and I find it so hard to build any connection. It's the same person, you know, they're saying the same thing. I can see their facial expressions. It's hard to build trust. And and I think um, the other observation I've had is I've got all these friends who are really reasonable in person, but really strident on social media. I almost don't recognize them. And maybe it's the algorithms that are only surfacing their really strident posts, or maybe subconsciously they are optimized to be more strident because an extremist because um, it gets them more likes. Um, but I feel like the mode of communication differs online and in person. And the more we can have that intersection of having online communities meet in person, physical um, communities continue the conversations online, I think that's going to be uh, very key in, in building conversations that are much more honest and much more effective. One observation somebody made to me is every block in Pongo, uh, it's a physical community also has a Facebook group, right? Which is a digital community. And, and I think maybe the answer is in that direction with the, the intersection of the physical and online world so that we can 
have different sorts of, of communication. Um, I think I think you know I, I I've talked I I'm coming to the end of my time and and I've talked about you know these two um, areas and I hope there are enough provocations for some of the discussions and conversations later on. So I'm just going to stop there and hand the time back to Dr. Chiang. Right. Uh, thank you, uh, Feng Yuan. Actually, a lot of the things that you're talking about strikes a chord with me, you know, and you're right. I think uh, many of the new HDB blocks do have online communities and they get together to decide how to aggregate demand and buy cheaper things for their homes, for example. <laughs> so a very active community there. Now, thank you very much uh, to the two speakers for very interesting comments that sets us thinking. And now I'd like to invite our two discussants to react to the two presentations and they may have even more questions or comments. So we'd love to hear from them. First up is uh, Professor An Ping Hua. He is the professor at the Wikimbi School of Communication and Information at NTU, where he was the former Dean and Director of the Singapore Internet Research Centre. He's trained as a lawyer, but also has degrees in communication management and mass media. And actually, Prof. Ang has uh, authored the book called Ordering Chaos, Regulating the Internet. So we sort of can imagine where's his orientation and concerns. And uh, apparently he was also appointed by the U UN uh, SecGen at that time, Kofi Annan, to be a member of the Working Group on Internet Governance to prepare a report for the 2005 World Summit on the Information Society. And uh, today we absolutely understand why there is a need for some of these things. And currently he chairs the Advertising Standards Authority of Singapore and is one of the vice presidents of the Consumers Association of Singapore. So uh, I'm very happy to invite uh, Prof. Ang to give his comments. Thank you. Okay, thank you, Kun Hin. Yeah. Um, so, Minister Tang, I'm really uh, uh, delighted to meet you in uh, online. Uh, would be ideal if you're face to face. Um, I'm uh, really inspired to learn that um, you you uh, feel that um, Taiwan has managed to improve democracy during this time of pandemic. Um, in fact, the constitutions are written so that in the times of they assume that in the times of crisis, democracy will be suspended. All constitutions are designed that way. You suspend some rights during a time of crisis. And you would think that um, uh, in order just to survive because of the crisis, you do need to suspend democracy. So to hear you say that you strengthen democracy at this time is really uh, you know, inspiring. I mean, uh, it's, it's the issue that um, uh, democracy is, uh, as I say, is the worst form of government only because, and you use it only because the other forms are worse, right? So, um, uh, Democracy leads to, in the end, a better life, and so to survive, it's you know, it's uh, it's major. Um, I'm I'm wondering because you you talked about how um, you know, Taiwan was open, whether um, the the key variable is not openness uh, and it's not freedom of expression. Because coming from Singapore, people always say, "Ah, you're from Singapore, you don't have freedom of expression, and that's why you manage to handle the COVID, right? That's why that's the only link, right? Nothing else." Um, I'm wondering whether it is because, and you have uh, sort of alluded to that, it is, uh, and uh, as the chairman also I said, moderator said, uh, it is uh, because of your social capital, the high level of trust that you have. I mean, it's amazing to hear you say that um, you reach out to civic tech to work uh, on a project. So your open tech and gov tech reach out to civic tech is really quite amazing. I mean, uh, I, I think we all wish, I think I speak for Feng Yen, to say that we wish we have a greater collaboration, right? The public-private sector uh, working together. Um, 
In Singapore, the government tends to be looked up to do all things. The government like can solve any problem, right? Kunhen is part of it. You know, he gives us good stuff, right? The Garden by the Bay, please come visit us, right, for that. Our HDB flats are better by the generation. I mean, you can see that each generation of flat, even 10 years apart, the one that comes newer is really better. I mean, you know, by, by all uh, indicators, right? So we, are, we, we feel that we are improving and the government is doing that. But sort of civic organization, civil society seems to be to take a back seat, partly because the government is, is uh, you know, is effective. Uh, so I, I think I would like you to sort of elaborate a little bit about that, like how you managed to get this uh, collaboration. It must have taken years. I can't imagine that this happening uh, uh, soon because uh, Taiwan did a militaristic uh, government for a long time. So something happened and then you became more open and there was more collaboration. Uh, I think I agree with Conan also that you, uh, the humor instead of rumor, okay. In, uh, actually I have a slide somewhere, I, if, if you wouldn't say that, I would say it, uh, I have a slide uh, somewhere in my deck that uh, my laptop, those civil servants in Singapore have a sense of humor. And it's only one answer. It's multiple choice, but it's only one answer there, right? <laughs> I'll leave to imagine which answer it is, right? Um, so um, how did you do that? I mean, is it you yourself? I mean, you seem to have a lively sense of humor. Uh, most civil servants take it that if you're serious, you're more likely to get promoted faster, right? If you are serious, if you make jokes, then you're like, oh, you're lightweight, you're, you're a joker, you know? Uh, so how do you manage to incorporate that? We can see that humor makes uh, messages go viral, uh, you know, makes things a little more uh, uh, lively. I think I would like to know the extent to which these tools that you have, your slides is 100 plus uh, tools that were used. To what extent were they successful? Um, you mentioned, you talked about the rationing of masks. If 2 million out of a population, more than 20 million, that's not enough. Uh, so did the tools help um, and, and how? Okay, so you, if you know that this, the masks are not there, but the masks are out, then what do you do? So we can elaborate a little bit on um, how you did that. And then uh, my final question for you would be the element of data sharing. To what extent was that data sharing? You mentioned that chatbots, and I know that chatbots require uh, the algorithm specific to the application, certainly at least at our level of development. And so you need a Taiwanese pronunciation for your Taiwanese language, your ta Taiwanese algo. Was there sharing of algos across? Because you mentioned chatbots, the plural, uh, you know, so that you shared, actually you, you basically gave your, your, your civic tech some of the algorithms uh, uh, for them to use. Uh, so for Feng Yen, um, yes, I completely agree with you. Transport could be uh, better used, uh, you know, AI. Um, my beef is uh, traffic lights. You, and I think many people were like, yeah, they agree with this, with this person here. Uh, we go from red lights to red lights. I mean, this came across like red light and I'm moving at a reasonable speed. And then you hit that, you're first in line, one traffic light, and then you're first in line, next traffic light, and you stop there. So is there a way to, you know, use that better? I mean, like, why, why are we not, not uh, uh, using it better? I agree with you also that trust is an element, and I'm, uh, I guess it kind of intersects with what uh, the minister has said. Uh, to what extent can we uh, build trust, technology or, or, or otherwise? My final point, I'm my last minute here, um, is that um, uh, you have um, the use of uh, Facebook for for uh, discussion. There's a theory in this space, a hyperpersonal theory of communication, and it says that you can do whatever you want online as much as offline. And in fact, online you get some features that are not available face to face, but online will take longer. So it is possible, but I don't know. You want to you know sort of take longer to do that. And also, I think we need a culture. I don't know if you have a firm views on this. We need a culture of um, of uh, discussion, uh, as what the minister have, seems to have in, in Taiwan, of uh, collaboration and deliberation. So, to what extent can we? Do you think you might have this? And you worked in government. You've been inside uh, the, the recesses. 
how might we be able to do it? Perhaps at a, at a small project, you know, then we begin there and then to take it from there. Okay, so my, my uh, comment there. Thank you for the opportunity. Thanks uh, very much, uh, Prof Ang. Wow, lots of uh, questions to think about. So while you mouth through those, uh, I'm going to ask Dr. Wu Junjie to come in, JJ, uh, to give us his comments so that uh, in the meantime, you have to think about also questions from Prof Ang, which has raised quite a lot of issues. Now, Junjie uh, is a senior research fellow at the Institute of Policy Studies, and he was formerly the assistant professor in the Public Policy and Global Affairs program of NTU and at the Education University of Hong Kong. He was a fellow at the SUTD and at the Harvard Kennedy School. Chun uh, Jie received a BSc in Economics and Management from the University of London and a Master of Science in International Political Economy from NTU and his PhD in Public Policy from NUS. So I'm sure he has a, a lot of comments for us to chew through too. So over to you, Chun Jie. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Shong. And uh, thank you to the two speakers for your very insightful presentations. Uh, like the audience, I'm sure like the audience, I've learned a lot today. Now, I would like to just give a few observations, raise some points for further discussion. And well, first of all, the two presentations have given us a lot of insights into how technology can enable and inform policymaking. I think Taiwan's experience with COVID-19 is a good case in point. And like everyone else in attendance uh, today, I'd like to hear a little bit more about how Taiwan's smart city strategy and technologies have contributed to its successful pandemic response efforts. And perhaps moving forward for other smart city uh, aspirants like Singapore, will smart cities continue to possess an edge in responding to crisis and pandemics? And why, why is this so? Now, the second thing that came to mind was that based on these presentations, it is clear that they're very tangible, real-world implications from the use of technology and online platforms. And the recent debates of, over privacy issues in contact tracing, uh, changes to WhatsApp user agreements, show how the use of data in the delivery of public and commercial services can come with important privacy considerations. And, and these considerations are not trivial. They are tied to our personal identities and behavioral preferences, not just in cyberspace, but in our daily lives the products we choose to consume, the lives we choose to lead, the beliefs that we adhere to. And certainly, uh, our second speaker from Yen made an important point that social media algorithms can give rise to echo chambers. And certainly, digital platforms and online social relations that they foster can impact real-world social life and policymaking. Like Feng Yen, I too have lost several friends from attempting to discuss politics on Facebook. I would not recommend it. Uh, so, and aside from social media, Online petitions have been used to push issues onto government's policy agenda. Uh, social media platforms can also serve to amplify sectoral and minority interests. There are pros and cons to all this, but at the heart of the issue is, how can governments manage the demands of both online and offline constituents? Uh, does the prevalence of technology as a communicative tool and information source disadvantage those who do not have access to these technologies or simply don't, do not know how to use them? like the poor, the elderly, we're talking about the digital divide, of course. And well, taking a technologist perspective, uh, as Feng Yuan is able to do now with your experience in public policy as well, how can technology help to reduce the socio-political rifts that may occur, or at least help policymakers better manage them? Are there other tools? Is it possible to 
use technology to manage the issues that te technology has inadvertently caused as well. So uh, a lot of weighty issues that I hope that we can spend time discussing. And I'll just close off all my comments by pointing out that you know, technology and livability, it's not necessarily the same thing as technology for livability. Uh, technology can be used to improve public service delivery and livability. It can also give rise to new digital divides and inequalities. So technology is not simply a tool, but a broader co-mingling of our online and offline social realities, uh, what's and all. And maybe we need to explore new approaches to building social capital, establishing broad sociopolitical consensus, even as we continue to draw on these tools to manage our daily policy issues. And I'll stop here so we have more time for discussion. Thank you. Thank you very much. I think all very, very good questions. Now, um, I, I would like uh, the two panelists to perhaps respond to Prof. Ang and uh, JJ first before we look at uh, some of the questions from Pigeonhole. In fact, some of the issues they raise have some overlaps with questions that are coming in from, uh, from uh, Pigeonhole. So uh, first up would be Prof. Ang's questions and perhaps uh, Audrey and subsequently Feng Yuan, please feel free to uh, touch on them. Let me just quickly uh, re reiterate a, a couple of things he said. Uh, I think he, 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 what, he made the distinction between freedom of expression and social capital. Having strong social capital, uh, being able to uh, enable technology to uh, deal with the pandemic rather than necessarily just about freedom exp expression. I think Taiwan has a very interesting model because it's pretty much ground up, right? And I think that's an interesting contrast from perhaps the, the model in Singapore where government took a very active role in managing the pandemic using technological uh, innovation. So I think that that is an interesting question. So then the question is then, what about civil society? What is the right balance uh, I don't think necessarily that civil society in Singapore obviously should not just take a back seat. But then what's the right balance? I think that would be an interesting uh, issue to, to think about. And as to whether civil servants have a, a, a sense of humor, I, I think I'll have to have an offline discussion with Prof. Ang on this <laughs> separately. But uh, maybe Audrey, over to you perhaps to address this issue. Thank you. Certainly. So uh, I will first note that our choice of words are different, right? I, I talk about the social sector, whereas you talk about civil society organizations. I talk about uh, the public um, um, affairs being managed uh, by the people-public-private partnerships. But the people will probably not be the first in the traditional PPP uh, arrangement. And this reflects the basic fact that uh, in Taiwan, democracy comes gradually um, as have pointed out rightly, uh, and the social sector organization, especially around large disasters such as the earthquake around the turn of the century, the typhoons and so on, um, they gained a lot more legitimacy than the public sector, because at the time, uh, I think around the turn of century, uh, the first term of directly elected President Li Donghui was still only on the first term, and we have not yet finished democratization. But still, the social sector organizations, the large charities, the co-ops, the uh, social entrepreneurs, and so on, already very um, swiftly uh, moved in space uh, and in also online 
space to respond to the needs of the post-earthquake recovery and response. And so that builds a lot more trust. And even to this day, when there's a large earthquake, if the Ziji charity publishes a number from the social sector and the local government publish a number, people still tend to trust the social sector's number. And so that's a very different configuration uh, compared to many other jurisdictions. Um, and that's uh, the first answer. Now, the second about humor, uh, really we, we got there um, by uh, exploring all sorts of different models, the NetsDG model, uh, where the uh, economic sector get to uh, censor hate speech, um, the Singaporean model, actually, where the administration uh, do have a kind of uh, power to uh, essentially force corrections uh, from the media sector and so on. Uh, and we, we've explored all these in our multi-stakeholder conversations, uh, but the upshot is that just like uh, because Taiwan, uh, we remember SARS in 2003. So any counter pandemic strategy that mentions the lockdown, like the uh, barricading of the Herping Hospital is a non-starter because people remember how bad it was. And so uh, people above 40 years old here remember how bad martial law was, right? So anything that uh, extends the power of the administration when it comes to counter infodemic is a non-starter. Um, as long as there are still legislators above 40 years old uh, around the time, when nation uh, started uh, to lift off the martial law, uh, it's a non-starter. So we explore all sorts of different uh, solutions until uh, we meet this idea that humor over rumor actually works if we respond to the same news cycle uh, that can respond to people's anger in those um, counter, um, counter power field. Um, anti-social social media uh, spaces, because uh, if people's uh, energy gets vented from outrage to revenge and discrimination, uh, then there's no uh, turning back. But if we cycle, uh, people's energy goes from outrage to worrying about something together and then to laughter and so on, uh, the same uh, energy cannot be reused uh, for um, the hate and revenge. It's a one-way street, which is why I call it a vaccine after the mind. So it's not me who personally started it, but I helped amplifying it um, in 2014 and later on uh, becoming an official response strategy around 2017. Um, and uh, finally, the question about the success of civic tech specifically the sharing of the algorithm. This is an excellent question. Of course, uh, our uh, production facility did eventually ramp up the production to more than 20 million medical masks a day. And that's not civic tech, that's entirely government engineering. Uh, however, uh, the civic tech people can actually help a lot by reflecting on the actual production because people uh, want more than anything equitable distribution. And so especially for people who are the elderly or immigrant workers and so on, uh, the civic tech people can make sure that starting from two medical masks per week to three medical masks per week to nine per two weeks to 10 per two weeks, um, it gets uh, rolled out in a uh, space where people can participate in accountability and also translate uh, to serve more than 20 national languages. Because in Taiwan, we have a national language act. So uh, the 20 languages more than half are indigenous, also uh, Taiwanese, uh, Hakka, Holok, uh, and so on. Uh, all these get equitable treatment. And so we build the national language database, including the corpus for machine translation and things like that, as a what we call a digital commons, a digital public infrastructure. So all the chatbot workers can build upon the same uh, material and also share uh, freely their research. Uh, we just um, 
has this interpretation that says anything that's open data, meaning it's uh, open source licensed uh, and structurally machine readable, uh, are by definition public benefit when it comes to the use of public money. And that's a very large step, uh, basically frees up all the not just open access, but the open reuse of the scientific research data. Uh, thank you, uh, Audrey. Uh, Prof Ang and uh, maybe JJ, do you have any response or additional questions uh, on, on this point to Audrey as a follow-up? Uh, okay, so just a quick one. It's interesting you mentioned uh, the 40 year as the cutoff because you are below the 40 years old, right? Yeah, I'm 39, so... yes. <laughs> well, okay. <laughs> yeah, just some research there, right? Um, so there's, I guess there's a, what you're saying that there's a big element of uh, history behind it. And so in a way, you're kind of forced to take some creative measures, which, you know, for us, uh, we haven't had a record. So, so we kind of went with what, uh, you know, uh, you know we, we, we're sort of comfortable with. Yeah. Um, uh, no, I'm, I'm good. I mean, that's a good uh, uh, historical point to note about the different uh, cultural elements here, definitely. Sure. Thanks. Okay. Thank you. Uh... Okay, if there are no, uh, JJ, anything before we move on? No, no, not at this point. Okay, thank you very much. I thought the other set of questions um, that were uh, posed by the discussants really center around really all smart city strategies, more the physical part of it. And I like the point about uh, tech and livability does, is not really the same as tech for livability. So the question really is, uh, how do we ensure that the tech that we introduce, it's really for livability? So I think Feng Yuan, you, you sort of mentioned that a little bit. So I don't know whether we can just pick up on some of these things. Uh, and uh, of course, Prof Ang has his, uh, uh, his uh, desire, you know, to improve your traffic lights, for example. <laughs> so, so the question is, how do we make sure that the tech that is adopted really is for livability and is really suited for people. Uh, I can tell you I face that all the time when, when I'm developing smart solutions for HDB towns, for example. So let us talk a little bit around that. Um, I, I'd be happy to hear from uh, the panelists and all the discussants. Yeah, maybe I'll, I'll take it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, maybe I'll take a stab at that. I think it's important to make sure that technology is a is a tool and you think a lot about, you know, in, in a product space, it's called user experience, right? Or the, or, the, or the citizen, you know, experience, which is why I just emphasize, you know, everything about Smart Nation, it just translates to me having more time to spend with my kids, right? It's all about the, the citizen experience and, um, and not to be too enamored by the tech, right? So I worry when people say, oh, I need to put AI into a solution or a chatbot into a solution. Uh, I get that a lot, to be honest, uh, even as I talk to, to people in big corporates, right? Um, and it's, it's easy to be too enamored by the, by the technology. So I, I think what's great is that um, you see as technology becomes more pervasive, you see a lot more use of multidisciplinary teams. So it's, it's having the right designers, the right um, uh, uh, people who can have conversations with users, interviewing users, understanding where the problem is, what the pain point is, rather than you know, immediately saying, hey, I need a data solution for this. Um, so I want to use the traffic light example, right? How do we know there's a problem with traffic light optimization? Now, obviously, each one of us, because we have our own 
selfish need to get to the destination in time is always going to feel frustrated but we need to also consider the other person you know who who uh, on the other side of the road right who's who's traveling in a perpendicular direction to us collectively uh is there a lack of optimization of traffic lights or is it just that we're only considering our perspective and obviously we, we we always feel frustrated we always feel the lights are against us right and so so one of the questions I always ask is, how do you know you you have a problem, um, and and be very data driven about that before you you rush to use uh, AI to solve the traffic light problem? I know for a fact that there are actually quite sophisticated algorithms that LT already uses, um, you know, to to manage traffic lights, um, maybe with better you know five G connectivity and communications between autonomous vehicle and the traffic lights in real time that can be even better, um, but but some of that technology is already there. So so I think. Um, thankfully, a lot of technology nowadays is not just engineers trying to solve technical problems. I, I think it's a much more multidisciplinary effort, uh, which I think is, is a step in the right direction. Okay, any other comments from the, the panelists? I must say that Fengyuan, in my own experience, the, 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 it's the, when you say user experience, I think the starting point is really getting the, the right use case because it's very easy yeah. to have tech for the sake of tech, but because you really need to have the right use case and you need to understand what is the right use case. And we need to understand from people, what do they really want so that we can work on the right use case and then use technology as an enabler. I think that would be a very important first step. I mean, it'd be interesting to hear uh, from uh, Audrey, you know, in, in Taiwan, you see, how do you determine that right use case before you even talk about the user experience, right? So again, in the in the example of the pandemic, of course, uh, it was, as I say, pretty much ground up. It was very clear what the use case was and it evolved, right, as it went along. So I, I'm just wondering whether, Audrey, would you have any comments on uh, how Taiwan wanting to develop as a smart nation and city would actually, you know, we talk a lot about the democratization of the process. How do you know what people want and how do you then deploy the tech accordingly to get the right use case? Be nice to hear. Yeah, we, we, your yes. Sure, we say more about smart citizens than we talk about smart cities, uh, but I still think it's uh, comparable. Um, so uh, this is a, a actual case. I hope that you can uh, see the rough shape of the original um, conversation of the AI called POLIS, P-O-L-I-S, uh, currently at polis.gov.tw is a part of our digital public infrastructure now. Uh, now, this is an AI-powered conversation uh, in 2015. Uh, the first case was UberX. Now, I assume all, we all know what UberX is, so I will just uh, point. Um, in 2015, Uber was working with people uh, who doesn't have professional driver licenses uh, and announcing it as a co-sharing and that sparked a large controversy. Uh, one side says it's not sharing because they're not evolving. Uh, the other side says they are sharing because they're time sharing. Uh, there's really no way out of this puzzle if we talk about the um, ideological things. It would just get more antisocial from there. Um, on the other hand, we do use a AI, and by this I mean assistive intelligence. Um, it's not authoritarian intelligence. Assistive intelligence, like Polis, satisfies two constraints. One is that it's aligned, meaning that um, its only interest is just to visualize to people uh, all those different 
about the UberX specific case about UberX. Uh, so I see my friends and family, they're in different clusters by K-means clustering, and I can see that they feel differently than I do, but it's fine because there's no right or wrong about feelings. Now, also they are accountable in the sense that instead of deep learning, it's just K-means clustering and principal component analysis, so that all the data is open data are for uh, analysis. The software uh, is HGPL, is free software, and anyone can draw their own conclusions uh, based on the human experience of going to the police conversation and see one statement from your fellow citizens. So back then, this is my statement that says, I believe that passenger liability insurance should be mandatory regardless of whether they are professional drivers. Now, this actually, uh, a lot of people agreed. And once they agree, their avatar move uh, toward me. If they disagree, their avatar moves farther away from me. But there is no reply button, so there is literally no way for the troll to grow. Um, the troll really can't troll any person here. And because we look for diversity and inclusion of voices instead of uh, the sheer, like counting the numbers of people uh, in each group, uh, each agenda must convince. Uh, uh, all the different groups across the aisle. Uh, and so this is uh, a, something we took from internet governance, actually, it's called a rough consensus. So you can imagine like um, hundreds of thousands of people humming together. Uh, and we always get this shape uh, once we deploy polis for three weeks or four, uh, in which those ideological statements, they are also there, but it's just maybe 5% and people agree to disagree. But actually most people agree with most other people on most of the aspects. It's just, it's only surface when you have a pro-social media instead of a anti-social media. Everybody agrees that insurance, registration, not undercutting existing meters and so on are important. But people also agree that use app-based hailing, search pricing and so on are also important. Um, and so when we have a strong mandate factor like this, including Uber drivers, uh, then uh, we uh, look at Uber and say, why, why don't you just implement your algorithm the way that our social norm already um, dictates uh, that you operate? You see, this is not about the government forcing you to do anything, it's that um, this is a social norm, and if you don't uh, conform to the social norm, you may face social sanctions. Uh, and this is actually very effective. Uh, and so Uber adjusted uh, its way of working. Now it's a actually legal fleet in Taiwan called Q-Taxi. Um, there's also line taxi, many other taxi companies with app-based ride hailing, but they always satisfy the same um, like uh, competitive rules uh, that enables its fair treatment. Now imagine if we did this on Facebook, on the anti-social media, it will the, probably the picture will be flipped around. So it matters a lot whether it's pro-social or anti-social in the deliberative space. Thank you. I, I think this is an interesting point, right? The issue is how do you use social media to really understand what people want? and trying to get a better understanding. Now, there is a question uh, posed on Pigeonhole, uh, which seems to be a little bit aligned with this. And also, uh, JJ, your point about echo chambers, right? And uh, the use of algorithms. Perhaps uh, you as a tech experts can say a little bit about this. But let me just read the, the question uh, on Pigeonhole. It says, what other thoughts does Minister Tang have about vaccine of the mind? to deal with the infodemic that has terrible effects on governance and livability that could get worse in the future. I suspect it's really has to do with uh, the type of information that gets out, the type of echo chambers that we are hearing. So uh, uh, please feel free to, to comment on this and I invite the other panelists as well before we move on to some other favorite topics that we know will come up. 
So it, it, it's on one sure. hand, it's good, but how do you make sure you can get the right feedback, you know? Mm -hmm. Right, and I'll say that um, the, the, the diagram that you have, yeah, I know your, 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 your diagram was very interesting. I'm seeing for the first time. Um, I'm wondering what it took to get to that stage. I mean, like, how many people did you have? What resources? Yeah, this, I mean, it's fantastic. Mm -hmm. This is what we want to get to. Mm -hmm. In fact, in deliberation, that's what you want to get to. And this typically, you can do this, but on a face-to-face, -face, as uh, Fungin was saying, face-to-face -face meetings, mm -hmm. you can have that. And I participated in some mm -hmm. of these whole day kind of event. But you seem to have done it online. It's really quite, uh, quite amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, this particular picture uh, is, uh, I think, more than two thousand people with two hundred k votes. Each vote being an upvote or a downvote. Uh, but we've seen this working uh, like uh, on one tenth of that scale, or uh, actually ten times that scale. This is uh, pretty uh, scalable. Um, so this uh, tool, I kind of tool for listening at scale. Uh, and this uh, works because uh, it's used for exploration in design thinking terms. This is just discovering our different feelings and then converging, dividing um, those uh, different mm -hmm. uh, divisive statements on one side and consensus, rough consensus statements on the other. But all this does is to define the common values out of different positions. This is not delivering solutions. So the first diamond in the double diamond, and this uh, tend to promote more pro-social behavior than if you just jump through the conclusion like a referendum uh, will. Now to answer the uh, question on pigeonhole, um, this is why in our K-12 curriculum, which I also serve as a, a curriculum uh, board member before joining the cabinet, uh, we emphasize no longer literacy or digital literacy or data literacy. Uh, it's, it's a last century word. We now say on um, media competence. Uh, the difference is that the assumes like radio and television, most students just watch uh, and listen and try to interpret. However, uh, nowadays, everybody is media in Taiwan because we have broadband as a human right. Anywhere in Taiwan, you're guaranteed to have 10 megabits per second for just 16 US dollars per month, unlimited data connection at no uh, marginal cost. Uh, otherwise, it's my fault, like personally my fault. And so because of that, uh, a lot of young people, like primary schoolers, they are de facto media, maybe have more Instagram followers than I do. Uh, and then they need to uh, learn that they are a media. They need to learn the journalistic standards about the balancing of the reporting, the source checking, fact checking, and things like that. And this is referred to as the competence uh, of the media competence part. And similarly, when they measure the air quality together using the air boxes, and so on. They participate in the data governance uh, coalition and so uh, learn about data stewardship and so on. And so all this is about competence instead of just literacy. And this I also refer to uh, as vaccine of the mind. Maybe I'll, I'll jump in here to, to kind of respond to some of that conversation. So, so first of all, Polis is, is fantastic. I, I saw it in when I was in GovTech a couple of years ago. I know there are a couple of civil society groups in Singapore trying to use that tool. It's, it's open source tool. So those of you who are interested, I think it's it's a fantastic way of, of having those conversations. Um, I wanted to talk a bit about echo chambers and to, again, compare the algorithms of Facebook with what uh, Minister Audrey is talking about, pro-social algorithms. And, and the truth is all these conversations are going to be intermediated by algorithms to some extent, right? And, and the problem, I suppose, with, with social media algorithms is that they're, they're being optimized for certain outcomes. And, you know, they have very different incentive structures. They're obviously optimizing for engagement for you know, um, linking you up with people you already have a natural affinity for rather than optimizing for giving you something that's challenging, something that you may be initially uncomfortable with. Um, so it's not optimizing for that. 
uh, you could design, you know, other social media platforms using AI that's 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 optimizing for different outcomes. And I think to some extent that's uh, what Polis is an attempt to do. Now, I suppose Polis to some extent, you know, using you know clustering algorithms. One argument is that it's more neutral, uh, but you are intermediating by visualizing the information in a certain way. So I'll just end up by saying that the moment you use technology, the moment you use algorithms, there, there's always, it's never completely neutral. Um, I, I suspect Polis is, a, is an attempt in that direction, but uh, I, I think we always have to be critical and, and, and think about, there's always some form of intermediation, right? Uh, whether you're reading a news article on algorithm and, and we just, as part of your education, we need to be super aware of that um, as, as consumers. Thank you, Feng Yuan. I think, uh... That is a, a good time for me to take the conversation to shift it a little bit uh, towards a, a very popular question that has come in uh, so that I get a good coverage in the remaining uh, time that uh, we have, about 15 minutes. Uh, and there's a question that scored the most votes. It says, how does one reconcile livability and service with privacy issues? Uh, and then it says, is public consent necessary at every step of the journey? And I suppose this is also tied up with uh, some of the comments that JJ brought up, right? And then he talked about Facebook and WhatsApp. I think that is a pretty hot topic. It's in the news today as well. And a lot of people are jumping ship to <laughs> other <laughs> platforms as a result of the concerns uh, of, of, of the, the tie-ups and the sharing of information. So this, of course, privacy is a very major issue. So I would like to open this to the panelists to, to give us your thoughts on this. Is it a trade-off? And then what is the right balance, you know? I, well, maybe I, I don't I'll think it's a trade-off, by the way. Yeah, but, but uh, please, please yeah, start first. Yeah. No, no, go, go ahead. No, I, I, I'm, I'm just observing that it used to be a uh, that one need to, for example, when uh, analyzing uh, aggregated data, because data tend to aggregate, uh, it used to be uh, that it, it requires a lot of pre-investment in the data pipeline to extract a little bit of insight, and that's the analogy with oil. But nowadays, uh, we don't we don't say that anymore because a lot of uh, good, good algorithms can actually make sense with very little data, uh, and so there's no need to make those over investment on encroaching privacy and also later uh, developments on for example synthetic data also makes sure that service improvement can be done with no access to raw data at all through open algorithms or split learning and uh, in the front we're working in the national center for high-speed computation homomorphic encryption that could actually operate on arbitrary uh, raw data with arbitrary algorithm but in an encrypted state and so i think uh, it used to be a trade-off but that was just be before maybe uh, this century uh Yuan? yeah yeah I, I i i think i think um this issue around privacy is something that um, were, the conversation will still evolve. Um, you know, the, the whole idea around privacy in, in, you look at the history of privacy was about kind of privacy of physical spaces, right? To, to go back to <laughs> what we talked about livability. It's, it's the right to be let alone in your own home. And obviously with, with the digital space, the, the concept of intrusion has, has kind of, um, evolved. And, and it, one thing that's interesting is, is obviously privacy is a right that there's no obligation, I mean, privacy is a right, but at the same time, 
if you notice how in some contexts people are very willing to give up information uh, about themselves. Um, so there are lots of nuances about when people are comfortable with sharing and when people are not comfortable with sharing. And, and, and I think um, one observation I just have is that I wish people would just be a lot more knowledgeable about how the technology works. So if you have objections to BluePass and, and, and all that technology, you know, please understand how um, Bluetooth communication works, right? Um, understand whether or not you believe that device can actually have a GPS tracker or not, right? Is it even physically possible to have that tracker in that? Um, uh, do you recognize that Bluetooth communications can register an encounter even across walls or floors, right? So, so the data is so unspecific that uh, it might not be able to help in, in predictions in meaningful ways, right? It, it might give you a, a very wide set of people that you might want to check for contact tracing, um, but it's probably not very reliable um, to, 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 to pinpoint uh, kind of a smoking gun, right? And then you make your decisions, right? And, and you may still feel that's still unacceptable, but, but do that with uh, understanding of how the technology works, right? With WhatsApp, right? Do you understand how the end-to-end -end encryption works? What data are they collecting? Are they sharing with Facebook or, or not? And, and then I feel, we can have that discussion in, in, in more specifics. Rather than this big bad concern over privacy, it's more about, hey, what data am I comfortable sharing and in what context? And, and I think that in a way is, is to Audrey's point about, the, that's how I think you overcome these, these trade-offs that, that might need to, that, that appear to have to take place. But once you get down to the nuances, uh, we're able to, to manage uh, that much better in, in my view. Uh, Thank if, you. If I may... At this point, I think we really might need to hear from Prof. Ang, since you have spent quite a bit no, of uh, a... Yeah, yes, I know. But JJ, you want to say something? Please go, go ahead, JJ. Oh, JJ, yeah. yes. Yeah. Okay, let JJ yeah. go first. Sure. Uh, just a quick one. I, I wanted to mention that, yeah, uh, certainly the technology and all that, uh, the greater knowledge of this would help. But we also need to understand that the end user of the technology is inherently a frequently contradictory contradictory, uh, far from rational human being. People hold con uh, contradicting belief systems. You may not yeah. trust a contact tracing data, but you would trust Facebook with your entire life's information. And why is that so? <laughs> so maybe we need to go back to fundamentals about how do we build trust, uh, whether it's governments, whether it's uh, social, uh, civic groups, uh, uh, social groups. So that's one thing. And I, I just wanted to point out to the minister that you talked about the infodemic, which is really fascinating to me. And I'm sure there must be an epidemiology of the infodemic, where if we think about COVID-19, we're thinking about reverse engineering all these networks, contact tracing, finding out where people got infected. But if we want to nudge people into positive behavior, we are not reverse engineering. We're building up networks where nudges can be pushed. The right things can be made to go viral. So maybe just to point out that maybe the there's value in looking at this from different perspectives and profound. Yeah, sure. Okay, thank you. Yeah, so um, Minister, I'm really intrigued to hear you say that it's not a trade-off because in our mind, there's some element of trade-off. Trade-off is not the best word. It's probably um, the way I position it is an ethical dilemma. So my, an ethical dilemma is a, I define as right versus right. So in the recent case, it was that of the right to use data to investigate a crime, a serious crime, versus the right to protect privacy. So it's right versus right, and then the answer lies in using ethical theories to resolve that. So if you take the Taiwan case, I thought there was quite serious uh, invasion of privacy in a quarantine method. I mean, that is the report that I read. They actually contact the person every few hours, right? You track, make sure that the person was in the room, doesn't leave the room. So 
this pretty serious, uh, you know, breach of privacy. But we all kind of accept that for the larger good of, of uh, health, right? Um, so I'm intrigued to hear you say that no, there's no uh, trade off. Perhaps you mean in a larger yeah. uh, abstract kind of context? Is that what you mean? Yeah, I'll have yeah, to please. fact check a little bit. We, we don't know which room you are in. Uh, our, our contact tracing method uh, or the so-called real name contacting system uh, has two prongs. One is for quarantine and isolation. If people have their own residence, they can choose to quarantine at a residence. But we uh, reuse existing touch points, that is to say, through cell phone tower signals. That's already the telecoms already know where the phone is anyway uh, through triangulation. Uh, the resolution is about 50 meters. So not which room, maybe like which block. Um, the telecoms send a SMS. That's true a person uh, breaks out of that uh, quarantine uh, fence. That is the fence part. Now, I want to talk about the participatory surveillance part. Um, so, uh, like, real quick, like one minute. Um, so, uh, there was a case also in April where a hostess in a hostess spa uh, gets diagnosed with COVID, uh, and she um, didn't um, say anything, she being a hostess, uh, in the first day of contact tracing. Now, on the second day, uh, out of, I guess, a sense of duty or something, uh, she said that, yeah, she had patrons that would actually prefer to remain anonymous. Uh, now, that's a big problem, uh, and it's Sounds like a dynamo for, for everybody involved. Uh, but basically, our CECC Central Common Center said, okay, we'll just have an administrative guideline. Instead of fining anyone or putting anyone to jail, we challenge life district owners to uh, invent a way that can keep the contact flowing if uh, they uh, frequent the nightlife place without that data being aggregated to the government in any level of the government. Now, within a couple of weeks, they found out this way. Uh, it's basically a one-time, it's not a one-time pad, but it's a scratch pad uh, that when anyone frequents the host's spa, they have to find a either prepaid SIM card or a, a throwaway, I don't know, proton mail or something. Uh, and then they verify the contact works on the spot, but they can leave uh, a pseudonym or something. Now that is shredded after four weeks as per the guideline. Uh, but if during those four weeks, there's a local outbreak, they go back and contact these people and then the digital fence and all that apply. But if nothing happens, they just shred it and there's no data aggregated. And at any level, the government is decentralized uh, on the level of the business owners. Um, so this is again, a ledger that's uh, distributed uh, and uh, it relies a lot on trust, the trustworthiness of the CECC, as well as the trustworthiness of individual uh, nightlife district owners. So I just want to uh, clarify this point. So let me get understand. Your government approached a bunch of people who are operating nightclubs to ask them to come up mm -hmm. with a solution that in Singapore would okay. ordinarily be done by civil servants. By senior civil servants, right. am I right? Yes. Okay. All right. Yeah, exactly. So basically, we're, we're saying we recommend people not to visit uh, those businesses until end of way, basically. But there's no, no fines or punishment of putting people in jail. Okay. I can't imagine the time. Was there an ever a consultation with nightclub operators in Singapore? I cannot imagine there was a time of that. I could be wrong, but I can't imagine. Different approaches here. This is a very, very interesting uh, uh, case study, you know. Uh, but yeah. I suppose the issue, uh, 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 just be the typical civil servant I've been for so many years, it does raise certain questions like, you know, this takes time, right? Yes, I was Democratizing going to say that. Democratizing the process takes time and in a pandemic right. where there's urgency right. to track and trace, can you afford right. that discussion and persuasion and negotiation? 
So I'm sorry, that's the civil servant in me speaking, I think, <laughs> right? Very pragmatic and down to earth issues, you know? <laughs> no, but speaking so for you, there is some trade off, right? And you have to make yeah, those very difficult decisions. But uh, I, yeah, Prabhu, can I. Sorry? sorry okay, yeah, can cannot, you. Singapore cannot, yeah, cannot, cannot wait. Yeah. Yeah. No, Singapore so, cannot wait, right? My, so, my reaction really is that. You know, in, in good times, you can wait and you can talk mm -hmm. and you can spend mm -hmm. the time and we should, right? But then mm -hmm. in, in a, a crisis, crisis management, mm -hmm. you need to react very quickly with good judgment. And, and even if sometimes it's, uh, it, it does create certain unhappiness. But at this point, I don't know whether Prof. Ang, do you want to say something about uh, regulation with regards to privacy issues? Is there something that we should be thinking about, maybe in a limited way? I think this has been debated a lot. Yeah, I think for uh, uh, privacy, it is uh, really uh, uh, an issue that people right now do not quite understand uh, because it's a bit technical um, and then different levels of, of, of this. So, um, there's, uh, so our Singapore law, for example, protects basically personal data, uh, which means secrets, right? Your, uh, who you saw, you know, who were you out with, where you took drugs on, for example, these are not protected under the, uh, you know, the PDPA. Uh, and if you look at uh, how, why people are moving away from uh, WhatsApp and so forth, uh, it's, it's quite clear they don't quite fully understand what, uh, they, they, you, know, you know, what is uh, being uh, done, what has changed uh, in the new policy of Facebook and, and WhatsApp. So there's one element of that. Um, and in the space of um, uh, this uh, area, the rules are tightening. Uh, certainly in Europe, as, as uh, you know, uh, Minister. So uh, in Europe, that is a, a tighter rules. Taiwan has tighter rules. Uh, Singapore has opted for a, a lighter regime, but more certainty. I, I'm told that the rules in Taiwan are very strict, are very tough, but actually not so certain for business. So we have a different regime from that of, of Taiwan and actually of, of Europe. But the move certainly is towards greater consciousness about the need for, for privacy. Yeah. So there's a whole area to, 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 to work on, right? Uh, there's no right uh, clear answer right now in terms of like regulation, um, but uh, people just getting edgy about it. And you can see that when there's a lack of understanding, like people, when people petition again to trace together a token and the, and the app, right? It has consequences because that makes it harder to trace. So we have to address this issue and it is not as, as the minister seems to be suggesting, right? That it's not always straight uh, through regulation. So that's a, that's a tough one. And certainly, there's, there are things that we can learn from from the Taiwan model. Yeah. Uh, maybe, at, well, since Prof Ang has raised it, uh, 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 Minister, could you just say a few words about what what is the thinking in Taiwan with regards to uh, regulation? Yeah, uh, for the pandemic uh, this time, uh, we did, I guess, a little bit better than we did 2003. We did have an emergency situation. The communication was very chaotic. The municipal was responding in a very different way than the central government in 2003 in SARS 1.0. And so the, the whole um, constitutional court uh, edict really to the legislature in 2004 right after the 2003 when the memory was still fresh is simply this uh when SARS 2.0 came let's uh respond to it without a state of emergency uh with the constitution fully operating uh and so that that is actually when uh this time around in COVID-19 or SARS 2.0's case uh we never declare a state of emergency all our action or our 
parting or whatever need to be pre-cleared by the parliaments or the budget pre-cleared by the parliaments. Um, and we are always answerable to the parliament interpolation. There's no uh, crisis state, uh, constitutionally speaking, uh, in the whole of last year. And so because that we're operating under a very different set of rules, we're under uh, you know normal state uh, democracy when it comes to counter pandemic, which is why we always have to work with existing data collection points. It's not like we haven't developed Bluetooth contact not roll it out without the legislature approval and so on. So we chose instead the earthquake advance uh, warning system, which is a very rough, uh, like um, 50 meter radius and so on. So the heuristic becomes then uh, this time, uh, do not collect data that we were not already collecting before the pandemic. And this mm. interestingly uh, explains uh, itself much better because people already understand through earthquake and flood warnings, the cybersecurity and privacy perimeters of those data collection methods which in turn makes that they are much more willing to uh, then work with those norms because they already are um, comfortable uh, with those norms and so on. Uh, and so I think this is, uh, I guess, delightfully um, like uh, utopian sounding, but this is because we really had it pretty bad in 2003 and a lot of advanced deployment in both the constitutionality of the law involved and also in the technological design. Thank you. So people are much more socialized this round, I think, without having to enact anything special, right? People are pretty much yes. uh, used to it. Now, we are very close to uh, closing, but uh, I've been asked to see whether we can extend it slightly because it's been such an interesting discussion. So there's been a request to just extend it slightly. And I thought, let's cover the uh, one more broad topic. And really, it's about inequality, right? Because we know that a particular digital technology has uh, brought into focus and exacerbated uh, inequality. And uh, in fact, this morning, uh, I was tuning into another session about uh, uh, identity and uh, cohesion. And uh, uh, Professor Joel Kotkin was sharing about the experience, and I think in many cities as well, about who actually gets far more impacted by the pandemic. People who know technology, have the devices, have knowledge of how to get into use teleconferencing facilities, uh, can just quite comfortably work from home. But the people which are out front, particularly the frontline people, they have to meet people, they have to be in front, they have to be out working. And in a, in a sense, it does exacerbate that uh, inequality because uh, quite a few, therefore, uh, had uh, were infected compared to people who were working from home. And that was what happened in the US and possibly in uh, many other cities too. So in the broader scale of technology, even beyond the pandemic, this is an issue, isn't it? And uh, in Singapore, we are just as concerned and uh, uh, I think we have tried to put in place certain things to level up people to technology. And of course, the, an interesting issue is education. In fact, there is a question uh, that was asked, you know, about, uh, you know, how does technology change education? And really it's about educating people about technology and use of devices, etc. So I, I would like to bring up this issue about how do we deal with the digital divide? How do we level up people? How do we reduce this inequality? So I'd just like to open this up uh, to a conversation. Feng Yuan, do you have any thoughts on this? 
particularly when yeah, you yeah. were doing a lot of smart nation things, you know, and students, right? You're expecting every student to have a laptop, for example. You know, I I I, I was uh, I was uh, quite uh, um, struck by by Mr. Audrey's kind of commitment to to broadband access, right? That they have in, in Taiwan, and I know in in Singapore we have similar commitments. You know, there are subsidies for access to 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 laptops. You know, for for schoolwork. Um, but that's just a device, right? And, and it's more like connectivity and, and access to media. Um, so, so I, I think there are efforts that are going on in, in Singapore, as I as, as I recall. Um, but but I think the the there are two angles to this, right? Uh, whenever there's obviously a crisis and emergency, um, those who are more disadvantaged are hit more disproportionately. But I think your second question as well is about education and and technology and, and media. And I and I worry that. Um, I think it's not really a technology issue. It's 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 a matter of how do we encourage more of these conversations, participatory democracy, um, people challenging different ideas, um, and I, I I think, ironically, in some other democracies around the world, there there's a certain kind of a, a rejection of a certain point of view, a kind of diminishing of kind of freedom of expression, right? Just because of cancel culture. Uh, so how 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 do we uh, how do we kind of um, uh, continue to encourage freedom of expression? Uh, in a way that encourages the kind of uh, engagement that you get from platforms like like Polis, uh, and I think that's where you get um, uh, education, and that's where the education is more important. So it's less about uh, some of it is how the technology works. I talked about understanding how WhatsApp works and, and Bluetooth works, but the other set of education is around media and and how do you um, uh, have better engagement on on digital platforms for the purposes of, of better participatory democracy. I think there are two different types of of education that need to take place. Thank you for those uh, comments, Feng Yuan. Um, uh, Minister, would you have any response to some of these issues? Yeah, definitely. Um, so first of all, I think when we talk about science and technology, we tend to think about natural science and applied uh, like industrial technology. Uh, but social science is also science and social technology, in particular democracy, is also a technology. Um, I think about democracy in terms of uh, information theory, like voting for uh, legislature is maybe five bits per person every four years. Um, and this is just yeah. insufficient bandwidth for, for the collective intelligence. <laughs> to work <laughs> and so, so, so I'm, I'm digital minister tw i'm also slash uh, radical exchange board member and i work with vitalik buterin of ethereum uh, to invent new quadratic voting quadratic funding and so on uh, infrastructure on the ethereum um how do I call it, a uh, co-governing entity. Uh, and then uh, this entity, once they uh, try something out like quadratic voting that really works, um, then we apply it to the Taiwanese, for example, presidential hackathon using the same quadratic voting system invented by the Ethereum folks. Um, and so this, I uh, think, is really a symbiotic uh, approach because the Ethereum folks are kind of by nature a republic of citizens willing to participate in the on-chain governance. Uh, and then uh, our transcultural republic Republic of citizens, which is my translation of our official name of the state, um, the transcultural republic citizens uh, are then uh, applying it in a way that encourages uh, plurality rather than any singular like uh, industrial um, linear version uh, of the technologies. And so in our education, we emphasize plurality instead of singularity. And we 
my job description literally says uh, when we see the Internet of Things, let's make it the Internet of Beings. When we see machine learning, let's make it collaborative learning. When we see virtual reality, let's make it shared reality. When we see user experience, let's make it about human experience. And whenever we hear the singularities here, let's make sure the plurality is here. Thank you very much. And uh, I, I, I also recall you mentioned some comments about uh, helping to develop data competence, learning about data stewardship. Mm -hmm. It's a lot about yep. uh, about educating uh, the general public, isn't it? Uh, and uh, mm -hmm. even in Singapore, we, we have appointed the digital ambassadors to just try to teach some of the elderly people uh, how to use the uh, simple devices, you know, and uh, step into the uh, world of technology, right? Uh, uh, I, I think, uh, for example, the use of the smartphone has really opened up uh, a whole new world to many of the elderly, and it's uh, quite incredible. Now, uh, how about Prof Ang? Uh, would you have any comments on on this? Yeah, how guess, do we um, deal with the uh, divide? Well, uh, I guess the ministers uh, define it's one one element of digital divide, which is the uh, participation in 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 a democracy, and I guess that. In a way, the tools do help to bridge that, but I guess there's a question as to uh, to what extent that can be done uh, because you do need some savviness. I mean, you use all those terms, including singularity. I'm not sure that you know everybody would understand that. Uh, I think in in Singapore, certainly more concerned about the income uh, divide, the wealth uh, uh, you know divide, um, and we have a big gap here. I mean, we we, we know that. And the gaps, even as you said, for sort of 40 and below, I find that 40 and above, there is a gap even in uh, on the media, media side, for example, the use of social media for marketing. Uh, and somehow it's assumed, at least in the past, it's, it's a lot better now, but in the past, like, those below 30 know how, know how to use social media for marketing. Those above 30 don't know. But who are the managers? Those have to be above 30. So you know, there's, there's some interesting uh, uh, dynamic there. Um, I would say it is a real challenge that, uh, that we, we have to face uh, because as we push towards um, using uh, technology and uh, as DJ has mentioned rightly, uh, technology for livability, we really need to address how do we, how do we um, handle those who are, who are left behind. Um, some of it is sort of not their own volition. Um, you know, just the industry and industry just never sort of evolved to, to catch up and now suddenly the industry has changed, overtaken by events, by technology. And now they're left behind. How do we manage? How do we sort of uh, bring them up? It's not leveling up because I know that um, uh, I'm involved with small AI startup, and we have somebody who is in mid-career change, and took a huge pay cut uh, to, to join. He's prepared for that, but not everybody can afford that huge pay cut, you know, to, to join. So I think I don't have a real answer here, but there's an issue that we need to to, to address. Yeah. Thank you, and uh, JJ, I'd let you have uh, uh, some words on this as well. Sure. I, 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 well, I don't have any solutions either. This is indeed a what we call a wicked problem. And, you know, with the digital divide, the one that concerns me the most is that divide between elderly population who, have, who are not able to use technology or don't know how to do it, and the rest of society who have somehow gotten a bit more comfortable with it. And like any of us who have tried to teach our grandparents how to use a smartphone, it takes effort and time. Eventually, they, they do get it. It takes time. And it's a boots on the ground kind of problem, right? It's like pioneer generation packages, like the budgets. You just need people out talking to them over and over again with the patience to answer the same question over and over again, uh, which is not quite feasible now in pandemic situations. But I guess in ordinary times, we can think about this boots on the ground kind of solution. And it takes a lot of time. Thank you very much. 
I must say that in my in my own experience of introducing uh, technology to to mass public, it's actually not easy because sometimes the people who design the technology wear certain lenses and, and make a lot of assumptions, right? But uh, but when you roll it out, it's not what you expect it to be. And there's this whole new world of behavioral science. What you think is people will react in a certain way, they actually don't. My own experience is that you, you need to actually try it out. And so when you try it out, you get a lot of feedback. And uh, uh, my mantra always is to make the technology disappear. It should be so natural for people to use the technology. You should make the technology disappear. So uh, even as we try to bring in uh, 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 digital technology and uh, uh, create smart towns, right? Uh, how do we get people to maximize and optimize the usage that we're going to give them? I think a lot of this is about, as you, you say, uh, JJ, you really is boots on the ground, right? Uh, uh, holding people by the hand and really demonstrating, getting uh, their feedback and redesigned if necessary. So it's a lot of hard work, right? But then that is, if we can do that, then truly, truly, right? Uh, technology is for livability. I really like that phrase that uh, Profan was asking. Technology then can be for livability. Well, I think uh, we, we should uh, end now. Uh, and thank you so much for allowing me to extend the time slightly because it was such an interesting conversation. I think uh, for all those who have tuned in, uh, you please applaud wherever you are and thank our panelists and discussants for a, a very interesting conversation. And we hope that from here, perhaps, we could learn something, and uh, I must say, uh, Minister uh, Audrey, you, it's such an interesting presentation you have given and given us insights into a very different way of doing things, you know. Uh, we should come and find out more when we can visit. <laughs> and uh, thank let's you so try. much for yeah. giving us let's, your time. Let's visit thank each you. other there, yeah, soon yes. as possible. Thank you. Uh, and so, live long uh, and again, prosper. <laughs> yes. <laughs> thank you very much. And uh, so for all the panelists, thank you again for uh, your great participation and comments and, you know, giving us the insights into these issues. So, and I would like to thank uh, all those who have tuned in. Thank you for taking the time and uh, thank you for posting all your questions uh, on Pigeonhole as well. Now I'm going to hand this time back to uh, Carol. I think there will be another session called Soul of the Nation at 8, 8 o'clock tonight. So thank you. Back to you, uh, Carol. Oh, thank you, Dr. Chong, for the very excellent moderation. And to all the panelists as a member of the IPS team, thank you for your very rich um, provocations. Um, to all conference participants, uh, appreciate you staying with us. Uh, please feel free to continue submitting your questions and comments on this for this technology and livability forum. Now, this is because we'll be taking your comments and inputs all the way to our final conference day on the 25th of January and to the IPS Reimagining Singapore 2030 project. Now, just to let you know that this session was recorded and you can view the recording on this site. Now, our next forum will happen at 8 p.m. this evening. The topic is on Soul of the Nation. So we look forward to having you then. Have a very good evening and thank you once again. Bye.